0: Hello, I'm Joseph,
1: and I'm Kinsey, and we are the hosts of It Takes a Village, topics in international care for children and teens in crisis. This podcast spreads awareness about the orphanage and foster care space.
0: We provide meaningful information and practical actions to help children have a brighter future.
1: Hello, everyone welcome to our podcast and today we are super excited because we have Samantha Clive who is the training director at a Child's Hope Foundation and has been working with them for over five years she is an advocate of high quality care of children and we are excited that Sam will be sharing with us today some perspectives on orphanages and children who live in that circumstance so welcome Sam thank you so Sam just to kind of start out, you have a very interesting story. So you live right on site at an orphanage. So tell us a little bit about how that came to be.
2: So I have been visiting all over South America, but um, in Mexico since 2005 and Baja California for the last eight years. And so as I got more involved with ACHF, it, was, it became obvious that international communication is really complicated. And having boots on the ground makes a huge difference. At the time when I started with ACHF, I was single. And so my coworkers sort of always teased me like, hey, go get married and move down to Mexico um, because it's very isolating to be down here by yourself. And, And so it was the joke, but I didn't think that it would really happen. And as it happened, my husband grew up internationally. And so when we got married, It took five months for us to come down as a little bit of inception. We had talked about adopting children that were older. And so we wanted to spend more time with them. And so it was just like a perfect balance of him saying, hey, we should move to Mexico and, and it being convenient for work and for our family. And so we love Mexico. We love international living. And we decided let's do it. So we jumped in five months after we got married.
1: That's awesome. And you've been there ever since. So that's really neat. And that's, I'm sure, a very eye-opening experience to
2: be able to live in a different country, especially right after you've gotten married. Yeah, that's been a lot of fun. Uh, Where we are, it's kind of like Coquit of Mexico. We're two hours south of the border. So it's really easy to pop up to San Diego and travel um, until we recently got um, custody of our kids. And so right now we're not able to travel as easily. It's been very positive and really fun to have people visit us and and to be able to have this time here with the kids
0: that's fantastic i'm I'm sure not not many people can say they have the experience that you have Um, and i guess based on that what are some of the conditions of the orphanages that you've seen so all
2: orphanages are in mexico at least it's a foster care system and so that's a really broad question And it really plays into how big is the orphanage. Some orphanages are quite small and they might only have five to 12 kids. It's more of a home environment and, and they might have more pared down ages. So maybe five to 12 or 12 to 18. It might be all girls. It might be all boys. It might be mixed. Uh, The orphanages were the orphanage where I and my husband and our family live is huge it's 85 to 100 kids it fluctuates because like i said it's foster care system so some kids go, might go home or they might go to a different home for various reasons new kids come but it's it's a huge number and uh, they have a baby dorm which is not typical of a lot of orphanages it's expensive to have a baby dorm diapers formula extra medical care And they also have a young adults dorm of special needs youth that would, they don't have another place that's safe to go. And so it's more like five or six orphanages. So for them, they're still, even though they're huge, they're still very much family style. And because there's so many, it's a huge campus, there's a big playground, we have by my house is a huge cow pasture and they play baseball in it and there's pig pins and chicken pins and orange trees to go pick oranges and so every home is different some orphanages that we work with are in tijuana where it's somewhat of a compound where there's a fence around it for protection of the kids from an unsafe community outside and so every every home is a little different we champion i guess i would say Homes that try their best to have a family style. So that looks like usually caregivers that are married that are the house parents of a group of 12 or less children. And because of deep requirements, girls and boys are separated. So you might have siblings in the same house. But if they're a different gender or if they're extremely different ages, say, a two year old and a 15 year old, those children will be in different homes, but on the same campus. So they get to see each other for activities throughout the day, meals, but they're not living at the same inside the same home at night.
0: OK, Sam, just a follow up question. Uh, What's the distribution of children to caregivers in the family-style orphanage system?
2: So that is dependent upon their age. Babies, obviously, it's it's a lot smaller number. It's one to five um, for caregivers. And they also get support during the day. I'll talk about that in a second. And then older children, it can be um, 12 to one. So in the home where we live, it's typically two house parents to 12 children they don't like to have more than 12 kids in a home because that just that's a lot of fighting that can occur (laughs) Um, and another tricky part with that is they're somewhat the same age and so it's sort of a party for the kids where they have friends all the time but it it leads to some jealousy and fatigue because they're wanting that parental attention, the same kind of parental attention all at the same time. Imagine having 12 five-year-olds or five to eight-year-olds, right? Yeah. That kind of attention or 12 to 16-year-olds. It's very different attention, but the, it's it, it has the same key... Times or or things, and so it, it just gets complicated for caregivers to do a quality job if there are a lot of children, more than twelve. For babies, they have two house parents and support that comes during the day, and a caregiver that comes at night, so that house parents can sleep at night, so they can do a better job caring for the kids. Because could you imagine five babies that you're waking up to every night? and caring for during the day that's just exhausting. So the baby dorm does get a lot more support than the other homes. That being said, each at Rancho and at the other orphanages that we work with that have the parent style, they do have caregivers that sub in on a consistent time every week. So that house parents have one to two days off and it's the same day every week that someone else comes and it's the same sub. For that house. So the subs are assigned, they might have two days at the little boy's house and two days at the little girl's house, and then two days at the team boy's house. So that those children are only rotating between their house parents five days a week, five or six days a week, and then the same sub one or two days a week. So it sounds like consistency
1: is really important in these family-based style environments. That's
2: their goal. Um, That is very much their goal. And because it's their foster care system, they are obligated to keep certain regulations that the government is giving them. Um, And so there's, it's both sides, right? So there's this side of, yeah, they have volunteer groups that might come in and spend time with them and bring resources. And they're limited on their ability to take the kids into the community. Right now, because of COVID, they don't even get to go to public school because all of Mexico wow. schools are online. Um, previously, they do go to public schools, so they're around other kids, but they don't necessarily get to go to the community park or to, they might, groups might come and take them to the movies, but they have to have special permission from DEEF, which is like CPS in Mexico. So they're not going on those daily or weekly outings that a typical family environment leads to going to the grocery store, running to so-and-so soccer games. They do participate in some community, um each home's different. They do participate in some community sportings, but a lot of time uh, sporting events, but a lot of times it's within the home. And so they're interacting just with the kids in the home. And that's that's hard, especially for teenagers who are yearning for that friend group and yeah, for that economy. Sure learning how to drive and navigating the bus systems and it's a lot of on the other hand, right? Would you have that in a family environment? If you're if you have a child at home, they might have you might have one kid that has a great aunt that who's super fun and comes and does stuff and another kid who doesn't. And so there's a lot of complicating factors to give a straight answer to that because it just depends on where we are. We chose Rancho because of how Um, easygoing, the house parents are, and that's the environment that we wanted to be around, but it can be quite stressful, especially when you're working with children who've come from really traumatic backgrounds. And so each home has sort of a different vibe based on how the director and the house parents address these different challenges of the children that they work with and that live at their facility
1: that's very interesting. So you kind of have started to give us a little bit of insight on the children in these um, children's homes. And so, I mean, I think that anyone who has not worked directly with children in these situations, everyone has their own stereotypes and thoughts about what they believe a child who is known as an orphan would be like. But from your perspective, How would you describe the
2: children in these circumstances? I would describe them as children who have come from hard places that they have had difficult circumstances in their lives, some of them um, obviously more traumatic than others, Mm -hmm. most children have at least one living parent, if not both living parents, it's not a situation where both parents died in a car accident but it might be that situation, but usually it has to do with neglect and abuse. So a lot of these kids have deep emotional and some physical scars. I can only surmise as most of us, the sexual abuse that happens, which most of the time comes unreported. But these are are kids that are used to quite a few of them spending a lot of time on the street because of neglect from parents or purposeful um, negative exposure from their parents. And so their behaviors are, are really challenging and they invite, they're seeking connection but their behaviors don't invite connection. And so that makes it really difficult among the kids because they want to they want to build relationships and friendships with other children. They want to have the, the positive role models at the home, but they're doing things to push them away, to say that stealing and um, younger kids fighting behaviors that are saying, leave me alone, but really they're, they're yearning for that connection. There's a lot of um, what I would call the loneliness factor which is they they have this connection with volunteers where they come, where they play, and they talk to them, but they have a deep sense of rejection that my mom didn't love me enough to stop drinking, to stop drinking drugs, to to not choose to be with someone who was safe and they abused me right and so they those aren't obvious you're not going to see that when you come down for a short period of time, but when you live here and you see that yes there's a lot of happiness, because I think humans thrive on being happy. Mm -hmm. Uh, There is a lot of deep sadness for the rejection of the loss of their family, most of them don't have families that come and so. Imagine being taken from your family because they were not safe. And your mom says, I'm going to come get you. And then she doesn't, you know, maybe she comes three times to visit. And then she decides for whatever reason, maybe she can't comply with the regulations that Deef has given her. And so she never shows up. So you're going to have kids that are really angry at their parents. Or you're going to have kids that are going to love them no matter what. They want to go back to that parent because they see them as they are. They're part of them and they love them despite the abuse. They love them despite the manipulation. They love them despite all of the hard um, feelings as human beings were meant to be connected. Yeah, I loved I loved your perspective on that. And I think
1: that, you know, outside of desiring to have that connection and that love from people, it's also probably a balance of them trying to understand their own emotions of why they're feeling the way that they are. And especially being in these hard situations from a young age, I'm sure that that's very hard for them to even get to the point where they can comprehend their feelings and get why they are the way that, why their emotions are being expressed in those
0: ways. Okay, Sam, we just wanted to ask you a little bit more about yourself. If you can just I guess, tell us why you are where you are and just give us an overview of, of yourself.
2: Yeah. So I grew up in the South, but my parents had grown up in various places in the world and I got that bit of wanderlust from them. So when I went to college, I traveled a lot. I traveled all over. I, I've lost count, but I know I'm over um, 15 countries and I've lived Uh, many different places. And I took a big gap between the university and grad school. And I spent that time sort of with this philosophy of fake it till you make it, stretch yourself, get out of your comfort zone, Mm -hmm. um, maybe do things that you're not exactly qualified for. And so my background job wise is, is very diverse from working with children with special needs to driving school buses to working at dude ranches. I worked for two years in wilderness therapy. I was a TA in grad school for search and rescue. I was a youth leader on river trips and out of the country. I was a climbing coach. I was a social worker, a parent coach in Arizona for two years, where 80% of my clients were Spanish speaking. And I feel like Much of that came from two things. My dad encouraging me to find something I love to do and find a way to get paid. I feel like I'm his kid who probably took that most to heart. (laughs) And then two, in college when I was 18, I thought I would learn 12 languages by the time that I had kids. Um, I didn't get married till I was 32, so I probably could have done that. But after sign language, which I could do basic conversations and Italian, which I could do basic conversations. I spent six years getting fluent at Spanish, which is a long time. Um, and what finally got me over the hump to being fluent or at least quite conversational was moving to Colombia. And it was there that I realized that I'm actually Latina. Um, I was definitely born in the wrong country and I just <laughs> fell in love with that culture. And and I feel like that has has been a huge piece in driving where I've been, what, what a lot of my travels since that time. And because I was 32 when I got married, I identified strongly as a favorite auntie, which is very much what led me to ACHF because it's that their volunteer trips are surrogate aunt and uncle programs to come down and have that bonding relationship with kids. I, I developed that. And that's how I came to know the two kids that were in the process of adopting is that our daughter, Juliana, just sort of attached herself to me. And and I felt this bond, like the stars aligned, right? And so I had known them for years before I even met my husband.
1: Wow, oh, that's awesome. We want to hear a little bit more about the adoption process. And so if someone was interested in adopting or
2: fostering a child, where would you suggest that they start? So I'm not sure that I'm... the exactly the poster child for this question because we took a like most things in my life um we took a really non-traditional route my -hmm. sister actually has three adopted children through the foster system in the us which um very much was not the path that she planned but people came to her and asked if she'd be interested and so her path is very different than mine i i knew the two children that were adopting um had this connection with them came 10 times a year for a couple of years and, and had this relationship. And when I met my husband and we were dating, we talked about adoption, but I hadn't talked to these about these two children specifically, cause I felt like it was maybe too loaded and I wanted it to sort of be his idea too. And so after we got engaged, he asked me if I knew any children that I thought would be a good fit for our family and, and was very, he was very interested in adopting older children and then having our biological children be our younger children, which is sort of the flip of what most families do. They normally have children and then they adopt the, the youngers. So we Mm -hmm. did a flip of that. And, and I said, yeah, actually there's two children that um, my heart really connects with and so two weeks after we got married we came to mexico and he met them and and he felt like they would be a good fit we've been married for two and a half years and so for two and a half years we've been trying the process and it was really hard for us the first um year and a half of that we really didn't get traction until a year ago but like i said earlier that was a huge piece piece of our decision to move to mexico is just to sort of give them an opportunity to have an informed decision when they were asked uh, if they wanted to be part of our family. And so we spent a lot of time with them. And for us, I can't imagine having done any other way where they really knew us. And that brought its own challenges, right? Because she'd asked me to be her godparent for her graduation, it's very common for sixth grade. And so we, we got to spend time with them. Um, And we spent more and more time with them on a weekly basis. And then we transitioned from that godparent, aunt and uncle to parents. So they they wanted us to adopt them before they even knew that we were trying. And that's a very different story than most national or international adoptions is normally you don't know the kids you apply to do your home study, you apply to, we we had worked with um, Wasatch um, International Adoption Agency which is in Salt Lake or it's actually in Ogden. There's another one in Michigan called um, Hands Across the Water which was an organization that we'd heard about that was willing to work with us because we had a little bit of a complicated situation being US citizens, living in Mexico, wanting to ch- have Mexican children. And then we ended up falling out of the running of being international adoption because they were older, Julie's 14, um, and our son is eight. We didn't want to wait three years or five years for them to be in our home. And so we were able to find a loophole, an exception to have them live with us. And so we live on campus at the orphanage where they live. And got an exception for them to live with us once we were so far into the adoption process. And so we're actually doing a Mexican, uh, a national Mexican adoption. And so that comes with its own speed up here and slow down there, but it's, it's a long process and they do it for the protection of the kids. I, I don't think it's always been this long of a process, but because of human trafficking and because of other concerns in adoptions of the past, they have really slowed down this speed and and make sure that it's a good fit. There's a lot of uh, pain in some adoption because if, if couples aren't able to have their own children, they have to grieve that first. Yeah, and yeah. if, if having your own children is a really big part of your family culture, then that's that's really painful for um often the wife and and can also be really painful for the husband and so to grieve that first and then adopt um, a child and invite a child into your home that has different biology from you so you don't know what their medical history is maybe you don't know there's a lot of scary things that come with that as a parent that you don't think about before you become before you are a parent there's all of those factors that just um, make it a little complicated
0: that's amazing thank you for sharing that with us I guess just to follow up on that so how, how would you know that adopting a child or children is the right path for you Because I know people have different um, experiences and different personalities. Uh, May from your experience, how did you know it was the right path for you and I guess for your husband as well?
2: I would say having an open heart. So we have a 20-month-old biological son. And the other day, just to be personal for a second, our eight-year-old son um, was, was displaying some really challenging behaviors. And... Being religious, I I was praying about it and I felt very much like this is not my child and I need your direction in how to help him. And I feel that same way, not yet, but I know I will feel that way with our biological son because in my personal belief, I don't feel like any of our children, whether adopted or biological are actually our children. They're, we're stewards over them if you subscribe to the belief that we're all children of god then that means we're all siblings and so they really are on loan and so i think the philosophy behind why do you want to parent is is a huge piece so if you want to parent because you truly love to help someone be their best self then i think that you could be a wonderful um, adoptive parent if your motives are different. If you're hoping for them to be exactly like you or to choose the choices that you made or to be better than you, maybe not a great path because it is hard. Um, and they do have their choices and to accept that maybe they're not going to make all the choices that I wish they would. And I'm going to honor that and put boundaries around that, but not force them to be yeah. something that they're not having that sort of a grounding in your own behavior that I'm not defined by my children's behavior is super crucial. Uh, I think one thing that's interesting about parenting, having seen many of my friends have biological children, is that it's not, it's not a sure bet either way, you know, that um, I know some people believe, oh, if you adopt a kid, then they're gonna get into drugs and they're not gonna want to be part of the family. Not so. I know plenty of biological kids that get into drugs and don't want to be part of the family. I did wilderness therapy for two years, you know, I saw it um, firsthand. And so I think just loving your child because you love them, not because they're behaving how you want them to behave is key.
0: That's amazing. That's, thank you very much for sharing that. And I guess just another question on along the same vein Um, Do you have any specific advice for somebody who is in the position where they, I guess, have a desire to adopt a child, but it it might seem like a mountain to climb? Do you have any specific advice? Be
2: so flexible. Be so open to it being uh, the proverbial journey (laughs) uh, that you don't know what's going to happen or when it's going to happen and you want it to be on your timeline, but it's not on your timeline. And then just spending the time. If they're older, like making sure that you have built into your day to spend time with them on activities that they want to do. Maybe they don't like playing board games. Maybe they don't want to play football or soccer. Find what they love to do and make it more about them. Not that you have to give everything to them, but to make it a balance so that they're part of your family and put yourself in circumstances until they come to your home where you're really, really, truly comfortable with being open to other people and letting letting the children that come into your life create the culture of your family with you instead of you dictating um, how to do it. And then, Another piece that seems obvious, but I didn't realize uh, what a big issue it might be, is speaking the same language, especially if you are if you're adopting older children. To make sure that you don't kind of speak their language, that you are extremely fluent in whatever language there, because there's so many nuances that can be really frustrating to kids if they are trying to express something and you're hearing something different. Communication's already so hard in a family dynamic. So just making sure that you really truly can speak the language of that child. And even if you're speaking the same language that you're you know, toddlers are a little bit like cavemen. And so being able to get down (laughs) on their level and and listen to them and respect them instead of just picking them up. You're, I'm bigger than you. So I'm going to put you where I want to go, but Hey, when you do this, I know you really want to do that, but we're going to, we're going to do that later because we need to do this first and just slowing down so that they can be on the same page instead of you pushing your power around because you're bigger or you own the house or you make the money, just Allowing them to be part of that family culture.
1: Those are all really great suggestions. And I just have to go back. I loved what you said about um, making sure about having the right mindset that if you're in it to help people and whether that's a little person or a human that's, you know, the same age as you, I think that that's a beautiful principle to just always remember that like, what can I do to
2: help? So thank you for that. Can I oh, ask yeah about that? Because um, I do have a little fear around (laughs) the in it to help people is just the reminder that you're helping them in the way that they want to be helped and that they're not seen as like, I'm here to save you, or I'm here to make your life better. You should be so grateful for me because I chose to adopt you. Like, yes, you should be grateful to them that they are willing to be part of your family. And, and so having this exchange of, genuine love and concern versus uh, I think sometimes, and this is true in volunteering too, that people want to give how they want to give. And then they think that that receiver should be grateful and indebted to them. And so just checking yourself like anybody, if you say to state it like that, it's like, Oh yeah, no, I will not do that. But we all kind of do that. I know I'm 100% guilty. Um, my sister ever listens to this podcast. She will laugh, right? Because we've definitely had disagreements is where I think like, ah, you should be grateful to me because I came and helped watch your kids. I cleaned your house. And it's like, oh, yourself on a motive and how and how you're viewing this situation.
1: Yeah, I love that. And I just to add on to it, I had a very um, similar situation where I was traveling to Vietnam and Vietnam obviously has a lot of poverty. And after I came home, I was having a conversation with a friend and I just said, man, like, I just want to help these people. And I just want to, you know, do something because these people were living on these little pearl farms. And it was really hard for me to see. And my friend just reminded me, he said, Kinsey, he said, I just want you to remember their dream may not be to live in a mansion. Their dream and their best life might be to live in a bigger boat or to have their perfect boat just like renovated a little bit, you know? And that brought me such a unique perspective, which I think you really touched on is that we have to remember what other people's dreams are and that that's not always coming from our perspective.
0: Yeah, and I think also, you know, it, there are challenges and I mean, it's it's not always gonna be clear cut and easy to to be able to adopt a child, but you know, there's a lot of people out there that need your help. And you also gotta, in, in my opinion, you gotta ask like, you know, what do I wanna achieve in this life? Is it to be able to build up, you know, Your own wealth and then you know die one day um with that wealth in your bank account or is it you know something that you want to do um, live your life to to help other people i think you know if you have that that desire and that heart to help someone you know i think there's a lot of people out there that would definitely benefit from that and i mean we're all human beings we're all like you said children of god and you know taking that into consideration you know where can we help and what, what can we do to help people So thank you very much for sharing that with us.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, just to close, I I, I think I can speak for both Joseph and I that we have loved having this conversation with you and educating ourselves and also hopefully providing informative knowledge to others. Just in closing, if you could provide us with, you know, one or two takeaways that you feel like are very important for our listeners to know, what would they
2: be? One of my um, biggest eye-opening experiences here is watching volunteers be here and not be here. And I think that there's a really big misnomer in, I'm going to go to Mexico or I'm going to go to fill in the blank, wherever it is, whether it be in the U.S. or out of the country, and I'm going to make a huge impact, change somebody's life by offering a little bit. And I think if you come instead with an idea of just to be with people and to serve what you can instead of my little bit is going to change their life and completely save them, which we've talked about throughout. But just this idea of, I'm not gonna take my kids to Mexico so that they can see how good they have it compared to children who are in an orphanage and have had hard circumstances. No, but I'm gonna take my kids to Mexico so they can get to know some children in Mexico and see what their life is like and be educated in seeing different people's dreams and different people's circumstances and let those children be educated in seeing different people's dreams and different people's circumstances. And it's this mutual exchange. And I think there's some disappointment when volunteers come down and they realize, oh, wow, I didn't completely change their world. Like I didn't bring the sunshine because you don't own the sunshine. God mm-hmm. does. You don't heal people. Jesus does. So so just having that perspective of I'm part of a big piece. This is a huge masterwork that's going on right now. And yes, I can make a difference, but somebody's going to make a difference to me. And it's going to be a mutual exchange. It's not going to be me saving somebody or me offering a little bit and I just completely changed their life.
1: Awesome. Well, Sam, thank you so much again for visiting with us today, and um, hopefully we'll get to connect with you soon, hopefully in Mexico. Awesome.
2: Yeah, come on down. Love to have you. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for joining our discussion. We hope that this podcast provided you with an educational experience and provokes curiosity thought, and discussion with others.
1: This is the first step on the road to learning and understanding how to help children and teens in crisis. Where the journey will lead is up to you.